Why haven't you seen the gold Why haven't you seen Spinal Tap? Hello and welcome to another episode of FilmWise, also known as the Why Haven't You Seen This Film podcast. As always, I am Bubba Wheat from Flights, Tights, and Movie Nights and Channel Superhero. And I have a guest with me who's introducing me to a film that I've never seen that's, that he's passionate about. And in return, I'll be introducing him to a superhero film that he's never seen. And that guest in question is Austin Shen. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. And why don't you just take a quick moment before we get started to let everyone know just a little bit about you and, and what, what you do and where they can find you online. I am uh, an amateur film critic out of uh, based out of Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, I've got a couple of venues. I've, uh, I co-host a podcast, The Film Room, with uh, my partner Albert Wilt Fong. Uh, that can be found at thefilmroom.podbean.com. And I also have a, uh, a side blog where I occasionally write reviews, um, thefilmroomlobby.wordpress.com. Additionally, I am a diagnosed high-functioning autistic, and uh, I blog about my experiences with that at a flickeringlife.wordpress.com. Right, and and that's that's kind of how I came across you because you you talked about that that blog on the the film podcast. No, totally. I'll, although it's expanded past uh, just a film podcast, uh, and for anyone curious about. Uh, about autism that's that's a great episode to to go check that out um but before we get into the two films that we'll be talking about i have some uh questions to get to know a little bit more about your film tastes so what are three films that you've seen the most often and haven't gotten tired of yet there are three very cliched choices, but I have to be honest and say them. Um, my favorite film of all time is Casablanca, and I can watch it and quote along with it. I, I just I know every rhythm of it, and I find something new every time. Um, like many people of my generation, the Star Wars special editions were a big, important thing for me, so I'm going to have to say Star Wars A New Hope, no question. And... Uh, it's hard to narrow down the Pixar films, but I'm going to go with Toy Story because I have just seen that film so many times and it just always gets me. Yeah. Yeah, Toy Story is one of my favorites. Uh, and actually, the, this is one of the, the few times, because uh, often whenever I ask a guest that question, there's at least one film in there that I haven't seen, which which is the main reason why I started this podcast. But uh, all three of those are, are three of my my own favorites as well. Um Casablanca is, is one of the few, uh, like classic black and white movies that I had seen before starting this podcast. Uh, and one of the, the only ones that I owned, uh, on DVD, uh, because I did like it that much. It, it's, it's a classic film for a reason. And, and I think it's one of the, one of the more, uh, one of the most accessible ones to current film fans. Oh, easily. It's uh, I've seen it uh, twice actually uh, on the big screen actually. Nice. And, and it's just it and it looks amazing there. Hmm. All right. So uh, on the other end of that spectrum, what's your favorite film that you've only seen once? I'm going to go with a choice that I'm kind of embarrassed by, but uh, it is the truth: is The Dark Knight. Oh wow! 
Uh, I've only seen it once on initial release. Um, it came out at a very hectic time in my life, and it's because it is such a very dark and downbeat film. I mean, it's really closer to No Country for Old Men than even Batman Begins, really, in my opinion. Uh, so I've only seen it that one time, and eventually I'll get back around to it. It's a great film, but yeah, that, that's my pick. Yeah, it, it does get pretty dark, but I don't know. I, I haven't seen No Country for Old Men, but I have uh, listened to a podcast about it recently, and, and I I wouldn't say that it gets as dark as that film. But... Oh, no. <laughs> I said closer to. Right. Uh, it, it probably is one of the darkest um, of the Batman films, um, but it's, it, it's also hailed for good reason as the best. Oh, yeah. No question about it. All right. And then, um, so I ha- have to ask everyone, what is your favorite superhero film? I, it's The Avengers, the first one. Uh, I, I think there there may be better ones. There may be ones that are stronger in some areas. But to me, The Avengers captures the comic book feeling so precisely. Uh, I'd been reading the comics for eight, uh, the Avengers titles, by which I mean, for eight solid years at the point when that movie came out. And watching it was like seeing panels from all those experiences put up on the big screen. So no question, the Avengers. Nice. Um, did you catch the uh, the sequel, the the most recent Avengers? Yeah, and give me enough time, I may even, I may even slot that one in in this place because I really loved it. Oh, you did. I, yeah, I'm I'm one of the the many people that where it, it's it let me down a bit. I I, I think that it it was just too hard for it to live up to the first film for for me and and I think for a lot of people too. I understand why it did. I, I mean, as I said, it's one of those things. It's why I hesitate to say now. I'd need to watch it as many times as I've seen the Avengers to know. But I mean, I just, I don't know. It hit the spot for me pretty hard. I would like to see the fuller cut that I'm sure exists. I will say that. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see that one as well because I, I have heard that they did cut out a ton. Um, but. Uh, and then moving on to the to my next question, if if you were to to write on a narrow niche of films like uh, superhero films or like modern black and white films or or anything along those lines, uh, what would that be? That, that's that's a that's a tricky question, but I think for me, I would be looking for uh, documentaries on film would probably be the one that would interest me the most just because I've seen so many films about film, sort of that self-reflexive thing, um, documentaries on the productions of films and, and such like that, and discussing how they work as movies in their own right. That's, mm-hmm. I'm, that's a, a narrow band of film that I'm fascinated by. For example, uh, the documentary Best Worst Movie is one of very few documentaries. It may be the only do- – no, it's one of two that I own. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's yeah. a, a, Are you familiar with that one? Um, I haven't seen it, but I, I've, I'm somewhat like I know what it's about. It, it's 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 about uh, the movie Troll Two for those who aren't familiar, and about the cult following, and so that kind of film really interests me. Yeah, and and another there there's actually quite a few of those those type of movies that <clears throat> that I do really enjoy. Like I know uh, one that immediately comes to mind for me is like Lost in La Mancha. Uh, about the uh, 
about Terry Gilliam's uh, failed movie, the the man who killed Don Quixote. And like Don Quixote himself, he continues to strive towards making it. I've heard recent buzz about it going forward yet again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's uh, there is a, a lot of uh, um, a lot of interesting directions to go with that, and and even like um, other films like Room Two Thirty Seven. Which is kind of kind of it, its own weird uh, documentary film that's that's like a tangent of of another film um, about The Shining. I uh, I have to admit I've I have not seen e- either of those films. I'd probably greatly enjoy them. I, I've heard mixed things on Room Third on Room Two Thirty Seven. I haven't seen it myself, but I I am aware of it. Uh, uh, Lost in La Mancha is, is definitely worth checking out. It's it's really fascinating to, to see just this disaster, this movie just completely fall apart in so many different ways. Uh, Gilliam is an interesting character. I was really kind of thrilled to see him uh, show up in a cameo in uh, Jupiter Ascending. Hmm. I didn't know he uh, had a cameo in that. I, I know my, my, my wife has been wanting to watch that one, but uh, uh, I've heard so many mixed things on that. It's you're. It is literally. You're either. You're going to fall. You're going to fall somewhere on the spectrum. Is what it comes down to. Mm. All right. And then finally, what would you say is your biggest film-wise uh, film that you haven't seen yet that you feel like you really should have gotten around to by now? I thought about this one long and hard, and I ultimately went with Let the Right One In. Um, because I absolutely love the novel that it's based on. I think the novel it's based on is just amazing and i have seen the american remake which i thought was a tremendous adaptation of the book um i love foreign films i you know i love this material but because of the notorious botched dvd uh situation at first i didn't get around to seeing it because i wanted to see it the right way and then when it came time for me to have the chance to see it the right way things kept getting in my way (laughs) But um, I really I love that book, and as I said, I think the American remake is, uh, you know, I'd probably watch this version and get mad at the American remake. But I think the American remake is a fine film. So knowing that I've loved it in two versions, I really should have seen this one by now. Yeah, I've I've I haven't seen either one, but I've I've heard nothing but good things about uh, the original, and um, I think m- most people, uh, or at least a lot of people, come away. Somewhat positive towards the the American version, um, but any I think anyone that's seen both of them would lean more towards the original, the the foreign version. It's 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 the same reason that I know I've heard that the Fincher Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is great, but I I've seen the foreign I've seen the Swedish version and I'm just not interested because hmm. the Swedish version's great. All right. Um, very good choices. It's uh, nice to hear a little bit more about your film tastes. But now we are going to talk about the film that you had me watch for the first time. This is Spinal Tap. I've never faced these creatures before. I mean, it's really quite frightening. Prepare yourself. We've got, you know, armadillos in our trousers. Control the forces around your hands. I was just pointing at it. I... Well, don't point. Where is it now? On its way to the city. Such a fine line between stupid and, and clever. Who are you? Well, this piece is called uh, Lick My Love Pump. 
Um, this is Spinal Tap uh, was my selection because really for me, this is when people ask me what I think the funniest film I've ever seen is. This is my automatic response. Uh, for those who are unaware, the film is a mockumentary following uh, a British rock band on a just an absolutely disastrous U.S. tour. Everything that possibly can go wrong goes wrong. There are problems with the sets. There are problems with the props. Um, their album cover gets rejected and replaced with just an image of black. <laughs> and most, uh, let's see, the lead singer's girlfriend uh, shows up who is a complete Yoko Ono figure, at least in terms of the popular mythology of Yoko Ono. Uh, everything that can go wrong goes wrong. And along the way, their star power just clearly dwindles and dwindles and dwindles. The, this is a band at the very end of their rope. And most importantly, they're all idiots. That's, uh, <laughs> that goes without saying. These are, these are not bright people. Um, the three members, uh, David St. Hubbins, played by Michael McKeon, um, Derek Smalls, played by Harry Shearer, and, uh, Nigel Tufnell, played by Christopher Guest, they're just, they're unique men, to say the least. And as I said, it is this portrait. It's, uh, the film came out in 1984. So it was sort of just at the cusp of heavy metal and 70s rock. And you can hear that a lot in the soundtrack. The songs that they perform are, they're both simultaneously comedic and also surprisingly good. Um, all, unlike a lot of parody bands, uh, they actually played in, uh, performed the songs themselves. Um, uh, in fact, they've done a couple of albums actually, um, all of which I own. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of this movie. Um, this is a movie that has some personal resonance for me because my family used to watch it endlessly and still does. Uh, when my mother got Amazon prime, one of the first movies she downloaded, she downloaded on there was this. And, uh, we were once in Jackson, Mississippi on a, uh, coming back from Gulf Shores, Alabama, and we found the soundtrack, uh, and just drove home listening to it. So this is, as I said, it's a special movie for my family, but it is just, it, it's, it's, it's a comedy, but it's also a surprisingly poignant film because these guys look sad and desperate as the story goes on. You can feel their frustration. You can feel their, just general sadness with how things have gone. Um, it's just, it is what it is. Um, it's, it's a very loosely plotted film. As I said, it's really more of just sort of watching this tour go on and things start so grand with such ambition. And then the venues just get smaller and smaller and smaller ending at a puppet show. <laughs> uh, they, 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 they get second build to a puppet show at one point. And, uh, it, I just, it's, as I said, it's not, it's not a film to discuss the dense plotting of. It is, however, a film that it has entered the uh, lexicon. It's funny, it was a flop upon initial release. But if anybody has ever heard the phrase up to 11, it started with this movie. Yeah. And, and I knew, I knew quite a bit about this film before watching it. Like, I, I knew that this, this was where the, the up to 11 started. Um, and I, I knew, like, uh, um, I was familiar with, with some of the, the actors, like, uh, Michael McKeon and, and Harry Shearer, of course. Uh, I, I, I know of Christopher Guest and, 
I know he was in um, uh, The Princess Bride, but I haven't really watched any of his like later mockumentary films. Which are I very, I will say, they're very much cut from the same cloth as this, and I highly recommend them all. Yeah, um, but like I, I knew that, um, and and I know a lot of people forget that that this one isn't actually a Christopher Guest film. It, it was directed by Rob Reiner. Um, at least people that are coming to it backwards, uh, based on the films that Christopher Guest has gone on to do. But um, and it, and I hate to say this, but uh, because I can I can tell that it, that it's a great film, and I can see. Uh, how people would enjoy it, but I I think it's one of those that that really benefits a lot from multiple viewings uh, because on on the first watch uh, for me I, I I found a few funny bits but but for the most part uh, it didn't grab me uh, that much. I I can really see how it would do that. Um, it it is very definitely a film that you have to I. It, I think that's fitting that it's a film that you have to have multiple viewings for because that's how a lot of music is for me mm-hmm. is that I have to listen to an album a couple of times before I really form an opinion. But yeah, I can totally see how that would be the reaction. Yeah. And, and, and I am uh, a fan of heavy metal music. Like I, I listened um, actually to mostly to bands that, that came out just a few years after this. Like I, I grew up listening my friend, is a huge fan of Poison, and and I was big into like Metallica and uh, maybe a little bit more on the industrial side with like Nine Inch Nails and and Tool and and that kind of thing. All stuff that I am extremely well versed in. Um, my mother is a massive Metallica fan, so I grew up like I I very much grew up in this atmosphere, so to speak. Yeah, and I I thought it was funny too. Like whenever they. They brought up uh, whenever they were doing the the cover art and and it was just completely black. It it immediately made me think of Metallica's Black album, which came out several years after this film. That may not be unintentional. Uh, Metallica were huge fans of this movie. Oh, very nice. I I didn't know that. I I, I only read like a, a little bit of the the trivia going into this. Like I, I knew that. Um, that everybody in here uh, played their own instruments and actually sang their own, did all the music for this. Um, that it wasn't like lip syncing that that you see in some things, and and like the keyboardist and and the several different drummers and 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 I do I do love just the that subtle humor where throughout the course of this this uh, movie they do go through like I think three or four different drummers. Correct, and they list the various reasons of death, and they are all just increasingly more absurd. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point where their one primary drummer, at one point you see him sitting in the bathtub with a uh, toaster sitting <laughs> precariously nearby, and yeah, that's it, not I, the way he goes out. Yeah, I, I didn't even catch that. <laughs> well, I mean, that's just really kind of... You, you really nailed it, I think, with the fact that, yeah, it is a film that you have to... It does benefit from multiple viewings. As I said, I feel like my opinion is definitely heavily based on the fact that, yeah, I, I have seen this movie God, 10, 15 times at least. Yeah, and, and there is, I think it has a lot of uh, subtle humor to it. Like, uh, um, I think one of the, uh, it was almost like a letdown because I'd heard so much about the, uh, 
about how this film about the like up to 11 scene and it's just this really brief like just this two minute interchange between uh between the two people and then it it cuts away it's that's that's one of the frustrating things about cultural osmosis is that you have scenes like that played up um to me that's not even that wouldn't even make my list of the top 10 funniest moments in the film it's it's a nice brief little bit but uh, i vastly prefer the uh scene um with nigel at the piano and he's playing this you know lovely piece and he's trying to explain his influences and then it builds to the uh, punchline of what's it called <laughs> and it's yeah I, I love that joke i forget what it's called but i, I know it was like my love pump <laughs> Yeah, the, those those were the kind of jokes that hit with me, and I think one of my, uh, I think the the joke that that made me and my wife laugh the hardest, which uh, I watched it with her, and I didn't tell her anything about it. She she wasn't familiar with with the movie at all. She didn't know what it was about, um, and I just kind of let her sit down and watch it with me, and I didn't tell her that it was about a fake band or anything. I was just kind of watched it and, and see how she reacted. And, and she kind of figured it out of about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes in. She's like, is this just a comedy? Yeah. Um, but uh, I, going back to, um, I was saying my favorite joke was the, the metal detector scene with Harry Shearer. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a great, I mean, it's an obvious joke, but it's so well executed. It's, and it so just kind of captures the attitude that these guys would actually have. It's like, yeah, I can believe something like this happening. I mean, I, I could see something like that happening to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. A lot of people I don't particularly like in real life, but have definitely known. Yeah, but just I, I think just the timing on that is just so perfect. And, and then just the absolute absurdity of it, like... Um, it's not like a, they don't use like a, uh, balled up socks or anything. He uses just this massive cucumber wrapped in tinfoil. It, it, it is. It's absurd. And just the look on Shearer's face sells it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's funny. This is one of, I, I don't know that I've seen Shearer in a lot of stuff that, uh, Guest wasn't also involved in. Um, mostly I know him as a voice actor. I mean, I watched the Simpsons for how many years, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it was kind of funny. And I should note, they actually did do an episode, uh, where Spinal Tap showed up and played on the Simpsons. Right. Yeah. I'm a huge Simpsons fan. I, I still, like, I think I'm a few, uh, I think I haven't watched all the episodes of the, this past season, but I, I still watch it and I still, uh, buy all the DVDs. Like I, I I have like uh, 18 seasons of it on on DVD and Blu-ray. Hey, I was at the midnight showing for the movie, so I I'm right there with you. <laughs> so yeah, I, it was great to see Harry Shearer in live action because I I I don't see him very often. But... Um, and and it was great to see like uh, um. Oh, I lost Rob Reiner as, yeah. as the director. It, it was fun to see him actually play a role, which I, I wasn't expecting uh, to to see him. Like I, I didn't, uh, I hadn't read that that he was also like a minor character in this as the the documentary documentarian. 
this was at the very, again, this was another cusp project. This was his first film as a director and, uh, at the end of his acting career, uh, when he was just switching over, um, and there's a lot of like very recognizable people in small parts here and there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Fran Drescher is obvious to spot. Um, right. And, and, and actually I think that was the point where my wife realized that this wasn't like an actual documentary. As soon as she saw the nanny, she's like, Oh, is this a comedy? Yeah. Yeah. Cause Drescher's pretty hard to mistake. And, uh, as is Paul Schaefer, uh, from, uh, David Letterman. Mm-hmm. Because oh, I grew up watching Letterman, so uh, it was great to see him in this. Billy Crystal was in it briefly, right? And the yeah, I, I did read in the trivia that this was only his second uh, film film role. Yeah, uh, it's it, it's it's a pretty d- decent cast. Uh, Tony Hendra, who played their manager, has written a couple of books which I've read, and he's a very talented writer, uh, very interesting guy. So, I mean, it, it, it's, it's an interesting cast, definitely. Yeah, and, and I think an, another, uh, another thing that's fascinating about this is how, how steeped in reality it is. Because uh, another thing that I had read in the trivia is there, there have been like a few uh, like noted rock stars that, that watched this film whenever it came out and they didn't think it was funny they thought it was like completely real because it it apparently mirrored their own experiences closely enough that that it was like it, it was more well that's not a joke that that stuff actually happens and to me that i think that makes me appreciate the film even more in the moments where okay maybe it's not as funny because I'm really critical of spoofs. Uh, last year, my podcast partner and I actually watched three of the uh, Seltzer and Friedberg movies, uh, Disaster Movie, Date Movie, and The Starving Games. Uh, to do, uh, to, which, yes, that hurt, by the way. That hurt horribly. Uh, it turns out their reputation might be a little too nice. Um, but what occurred to me as I was watching these movies was that they they didn't have any baseline reality to to sense that okay this is what you're making fun of i'm much more of a fan of spoof movies like this and uh, walk hard is a particular favorite of mine where i have some vague sense that there is some grounding as to what you're spoofing like some sense that you're trying hard and everything isn't automatically a joke right it's just something that i really appreciate when i see it yeah, the the better spoofs are, are where it takes a situation that's realistic, and then it just takes a slight spin on it. And instead of those those movies that they just keep making, where it's just uh, pop culture reference with a fart noise at the end. That's literally what those movies are. I'm telling you, it is exactly <laughs> what those movies are. Uh, the worst part about it was that this was our April Fool's Day cast, so we pretended like we liked them. <laughs> And we did this for two hours. Oh, that's pretty tough. I, I, I've only done I've done something similar to that one time uh, where it was a writing challenge where I wrote a positive review of Batman and Robin. I would be <laughs> impressed. I would be thoroughly impressed. Uh, that was not a happy memory for my childhood. <laughs> um, but yeah, the um. I don't know what else can we say about this. It's it's very steeped in in hair metal. 
Mm-hmm. Like I, I think the the hair is almost another character in this film. It is the the because it's all all three guys have such unique hairstyles. The flowing blonde locks on McKeon, the long shaggy uh, black on um, uh, Shearer, and the mustache. <laughs> oh, that mustache! Yeah, that mustache is something else. That it, it's almost a joke in its in itself, and and how he has like that. Uh, it's not quite gimp gear, but it's like this uh, subtle gimp gear that he wears. Yeah, which is funny because he comes off as so mild mannered. It's such a weird contrast. Um, it's yeah. It and what's interesting is when the film was made, hair metal tropes weren't really set. So, given the film's popularity, it's hard not to wonder if there wasn't a certain degree of these guys were probably most likely in on what was going on in music at the time. And, you know, probably were doing some research into it. But I suspect a number of hair metal bands probably took cues from this film, frankly. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised because it really does, it really has like a a prescience uh, to it to where... Uh, this uh, it feels so much like what the music scene could be, and definitely what it became. I mean, because I I was born in it's I was born the year of this movie's release, but I love the music from it. I I, I you know from that era. I'm a huge '80s rock guy. Uh, I'm a huge '70s rock guy. Um, I will any of it. Um, everything from Zeppelin to ELO, I will blast it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I again, I really have an appreciation for what they were going for. It's not like I'm watching this with no understanding of what they're doing. I fully got what they were doing, and I appreciated it. Yeah, and and I do think that that the the lasting legacy of this uh, is is impressive, and not only that, but uh, I I do th- I can see even just from the first time watch and and knowing what I know about this film that there are probably a lot of jokes that I didn't catch the first time. I can guarantee you that. Um, I, I, I hate to be that guy who's like, well, yeah, that's how, but no, that is how it works. Uh, Cause I, I find that with most comedies, that's how it works for me. The comedies that I laugh the hardest at the first time are the ones that I usually don't wind up wanting to watch again, frankly. <laughs> They just don't hold up as well. Uh, the exception is the uh, uh, Edgar Wright's Cornetto trilogy. I Those I usually laugh like a hyena on the first time, and then I do the same for the rest of them. Yeah, I think some of the best, uh, some of the best comedies, and uh, Scott Pilgrim is one of those that oh. does this for me, where this they start setting up a joke, and I start laughing at the punchline because I know it's coming. Mm-hmm. Oh, Wright does that in his entire filmography. He sets up everything. And Scott Pilgrim is, yeah, Scott Pilgrim, I'm going to have to tell uh, Albert, we have a joke that it's almost impossible for us to get through our cast without uh, an episode of our cast without referencing that movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan, suffice it to say. Um. All right, well, is there anything else that, that you want to say about uh, This Is Spinal Tap? Really, I mean, I will tell people that it's on Netflix, so um, if you get the chance, it's extremely easy to throw on, so mm-hmm. it's, it's not hard to find. 
Yeah, and and it's non non-linear, so it's it's one of those where, I mean, I I would recommend paying attention to the whole to the whole thing, but if you're just like casually watching it, it's, it's perfect. Yeah, it's it's easy For to that, just yeah. jump in and jump out because it's it's all about the characters and and the situations like within each scene, and and another another great scene that. That's just this small moment is like whenever they're um, they're backstage and they're trying to find their way to the stage, yes. just go around in a circle. Okay, that is one of the scenes that's uh, entered cult- cultural osmosis for a number of people I know, and it still it still lands just so wonderfully. So yeah, agreed completely. All right, and uh, well, I'd, I'd like to, to thank you for for introducing it to me. Um, I've I will probably try and catch it again sometime, um, sometime in the future. Even though, uh, like I said, it, it didn't it didn't land as hard as it could have for me. But I can I I do appreciate the film, and I think that I would appreciate it more if I give it a second chance in the future. Um, but we are going to take a quick break, and whenever we come back, we're going to talk about the film that I had you watch for the first time. Doctor Strange. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. In a world where podcasts already seem to address every imaginable subject, one man broke new ground with a seemingly random obsession about exploding helicopters in movies. He was a podcaster on the edge, a maverick broadcaster who played by his own rules. Now, he has a last chance to talk about the strange way helicopters exploding film. Exploding Helicopter, available on iTunes and Podomatic now. Think you know about Chopper Fireballs? Think again. Uh, so, Doctor Strange came out in 2007, and it was one of the animated films that, uh, that Marvel did in partner with... Uh, Lionsgate, and uh, they started coming out just uh, a couple years before the first Iron Man film, and uh, they did uh, Iron Man, and this was, uh, I think, their second or third one where they did Doctor Strange, and it was, uh, um, one of the directors was Jay Oliva, um, and I, I find it interesting because he later went on to direct some of the uh, the more well-known uh, DC animated films like the Flashpoint Paradox and uh, the Dark Knight Returns Part One and Two, um, but this takes the the character of Doctor Strange, who will be coming it to live action, being played by Benedict Cumberbatch next November, I believe. Yes. Um, and this pretty much covers his origin story, going through uh, his life as a an arrogant neurosurgeon who. Uh, has this uh, car crash where he loses the the use of his hands, and then he eventually becomes the uh, the sorcerer supreme uh, by the the end of the film. Um, now, uh, before I ask you what you thought of the of the movie, because um, I know that you that you do that you are a comics reader, uh, have you been a reader of any of the Doctor Strange comics before? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, quite a big fan, actually. Uh, I really love the uh, Lee Ditko run. Um, I've got a couple of the essentials. Um, I'm a, 
one of the miniseries that I always recommend to people in when they're trying to like slowly venture outside of the better known characters is uh, Brian K. Vaughn and Marcos Martin's uh, Doctor Strange: The Oath, which is just an absolutely brilliant read, um, and which really has a very strong Steve Ditko influence on it. So yeah, I'm a big fan of the comics actually. Okay, so um, coming from it from a, a comics fan, uh, what did you think of this adaptation? I was highly impressed with it, actually. Uh, this is, hands down, the best of the Marvel animated films that I've seen, and I thought they did a wonderful job with it. Right, and and this is one of my favorites of, of theirs as well, which is surprising because it, it is one of the earlier ones that they did, and I think a large part of it is, um, I, or at least I'd like to attribute it to, uh, to the director, Jay Oliva, who's one of three directors in this. Uh, because I've I've been a, a big fan of his later work with the, the DC animation. As have I. I've really enjoyed the stuff that he's done with them, and I, I think so because it really it's some very good animation. Um, at times, surprisingly lush. I thought mm-hmm. like I was really kind of thrown by how good some of the animation was uh, for direct video animation. Because I did see the Ultimate Avengers movie. And was not impressed with that, to the least. <laughs> yeah, I, I had recently watched uh, those as well, and uh, rewatched because I, I think I watched uh, both of them before I started my site, um, and then I just uh, rewatched them earlier this year to to review them, and uh, they did not hold up compared to a lot of the the animated stuff that I've watched since then. Now this 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 really uh, at at times they even did get a little bit of the uh, Ditko feel, especially in the uh, Sanctum Sanctorum scenes. Those really had a strong Ditko influence, which I liked seeing. Hmm. But, um, yeah, and and I I think um, I thought Dormammu as as a character just looked gorgeous in most of the scenes that he was in. I, I agree. It was a little bit of a tweak to the design, but it was one that was very effective and showed that it could work very well in live action. Mm. Uh, I This is one time when I would really kind of hope that Scott Derrickson had watched this film just to get an idea or two to see that some of this stuff could work really well because, yeah, Dormammu looked terrifying. Yeah, and, and I know that, um, which I, I've seen... Like through my site, I've seen a ton of origin stories, and this one does seem to to follow like several, a few different um, superhero origins, where you have this arrogant character that that suffers a tragedy, and then he has to uh, get trained and and learn humility as, as well as uh, I guess what becomes his superpower with the magic. But I've I've always been interested in like the the training sequences and and I thought this was done really uh, really well and it's they I thought they built it up uh, quite well with um, with with a gradual change from where he started to where he ended. It is a remarkably well-paced film for uh, only about 75 minutes. It's a very well-paced uh, project because mm-hmm. sometimes on these films you do not see that. And, uh, yeah, I agree. I think they did a good job of slowly explaining 
they did a good job of explaining why he felt so arrogant. Like, I mean, they did a good job of explaining his entire motivations. They were remarkably well sketched, uh, better even really than the comic book, uh, hmm. which is not something I often get to say. <laughs> um, um, I wouldn't know because I, I, I know I mentioned this uh, uh, often, but uh, I'm even though I do watch all these comic book films, uh, I don't read very many comic books at all. So I, like my background with all of these characters comes just from the movies and some of the TV shows. It's as I said, my house is wall to wall graphic novels, which uh, has its pluses and minuses. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Um, but, uh, I, I, I do also like, um, let's see the, the voice actor, uh, Bryce Johnson. I, I'm not familiar with him as an actor, but I thought that he portrayed Dr. Strange pretty well. Um, uh, especially going from the, the, basically the arrogant jerk, uh, in the beginning and, and making him, uh, at least, I don't know if he exactly made him likable. Because he's supposed to be somewhat unlikable at the beginning, um, and, and I think that that could be one one complaint some people would have about this film is that uh, I I do think that maybe him as a character doesn't become likable until about halfway through the uh, the sequence in Tibet. I I I, I can see that. Um... I think that they did a good good enough job of at least giving you a degree of sympathy for the character. Mm-hmm. But um, there is something really gratifying in our culture about seeing arrogance uh, forced into humility. And I, I think I think we've all felt uh, arrogance, definitely, and of course we have. And I don't know, I've, I, I did feel like it was pretty effective. But yeah, it, he is definitely a little... Little, little, very heavy on the cult side, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, let's see, what did you think about? Um, well, let me ask you, uh, from the coming from the comic side, is Mondo a character from the comics um, that that goes through a similar arc, or or is he new to the to the film? Mordo is pretty much um, one-to-one how he is in the comics. Okay, so... there's Because I, I was going to ask you, like, if he was a new creation, if you could see his turn coming, but uh, if you were familiar with his character, then obviously you would know where it's where it was leading. Yeah, in fact, uh, they just actually, on the... Like, as soon as I turned off the movie, um, I picked up my phone to see that uh, Variety had announced that uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor is going to be playing him in the movie. Oh, nice. I I saw that he was cast, but I I didn't um, I didn't notice, or I whenever I read the name of the character, I hadn't remembered this movie well enough. And then whenever I was watching this movie, I'd forgotten what name they had said. Yeah, that's uh, that's going to be uh, Edgeofor's part. Uh, so he is he's a classic uh, character from the comics, and his arc is pretty much one to one what it is in the comics. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see that. And, and I know that there has been a lot of casting news about the, the Doctor Strange film. And, and I'm really curious to see how that ends up because, of course, we have Benedict Cumberbatch playing Doctor Strange. 
which that that seems like a, a no-brainer. I think he, he's going to kill it. It's I'm a huge fan of his from Sherlock because I am a giant Sherlock Holmes fan. So yeah, he's he's going to kill it. And then uh, they've also had some more interesting uh, casting announcements. Like uh, there, there's the possibility that Tilda Swinton will actually be playing the Ancient One. My understanding from the uh, Edgeo Four announcement was that she was pretty much taken as as in. Uh, Marvel's really bad about waiting until the last minute to confirm things, so it's really pretty much sounding like uh, she's probably in. And uh, I think that's interesting. I, there's it's it's going to be tr- it's going to be interesting to see. That's just probably the best way of putting it. Right, and and of course. Um... Like if if I remember right, Scott Derrickson is more well known for his horror films. Yeah. Uh, so it'll it'll be great to see them take uh, a darker direction, hopefully, because we one thing that Marvel hasn't done very much is to really uh, go very dark. Um, they're uh, out of, uh, especially compared to the the few DC films that we've seen. Marvel is almost always on the lighter side of things. I, I, it's it's gonna be interesting. Uh, I've seen a couple of Derrickson's films, and he's a really, really strong choice for this. He's not only a horror director; he's a very good horror director, um, and uh, has a very strong interest in demons. So this was the right guy to go to, uh, and he seems he seems pretty enthusiastic about it. Uh, mm. I think this this is going to very definitely not be the Marvel film that people are expecting. Uh, it's people should be thinking less Iron Man and a whole lot more. I'm going to bring up a movie that's very controversial, but Constantine. Mm-hmm. It's it's going to be a lot more like that. Yeah, uh, which uh, I'll I'll say that, um, and and I I think I've said this before, but uh, as especially as someone who did not have a background with the comics, I do enjoy the uh, the Constantine film. Uh, even though I understand that it's uh, pretty much nothing like the comics. Oh, I really enjoyed it. I I thought it was uh, a tremendous amount of fun, and I like Keanu Reeves anyway. So, of mm. course, Swinton was in that. Come to think about it, so right. Um, and uh, I I will say that I think one of the downsides of this uh, of this film, um, and and it's pretty much just a factor of the the short time uh, that it's only like a 70-some minute film, is that a lot of the supporting cast, you don't really get a feel for any of them, and, and they like they pretty much all die off. Uh, yeah. So so their, their deaths um, don't feel very uh, impactful. And not only do they die off, but it's a very, it's very unceremonious deaths for some of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just sort of, it's, and it's all basically a necessary deck clearing to get things into place for Strange to take over. Right. Uh, I know most of them pretty much just die off camera. Uh, and only uh, of the, uh, of like the supporting cast, the only ones that um, were from the comics are pretty much the only ones that are still alive at the end of the uh, film or who had impactful deaths, uh, such as Ancient One, and, well, as I said, Mordo is uh, a, a vil- the major villain from the comics, along with Dormammu, and then uh, Wong is uh, Strange's uh, partner, so. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and um, 
One thing that I was going to ask because they they make a, a reference at like just a, a very casual reference at the very end uh, about uh, a character's name. Oh yes, uh, Clea. Yeah, I, I caught that. Uh, yes, she was Doctor Strange's longtime love interest. Hmm. Yeah, because I, I knew. Like from watching these so much, I, I knew that that was pretty much a call out to the comics, even though I wasn't familiar with um, with what it was referring to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was uh, she was a longtime love interest of the character in the comics. Hmm. Very nice. Um, was there any anything else about about this film that you think that it could have done better? Well, I mean, you nailed it with that. The short time does always kind of hurt it to some degree. All these films have had to face that to a great degree, the uh, the brevity. Um, and uh, I definitely could have used – I could have used more is what it comes down to. Uh, it definitely left me wanting a bit more. I mean, they're extremely well-paced films at their 75-minute time. But I always do kind of come away from them wishing that I'd had a little bit more meat to chew on, frankly. Mm-hmm. And that's just the inevitability of being at that runtime. Right. Yeah, and, and I have seen a lot of these. And, and I think that there's that there's a reason why, why The Dark Knight Returns Part 1 and 2 is at the top of my list. Because they had twice as much time to fill in that story. That's one that I keep meaning to get around to watching, and I, when I watch it, it will be with um, the two discs ready to go, one and right after the other. Right, and then, and I, I would agree that that's the best way to to tackle that one, uh, even though they like I I watched them separately, but uh, uh, they work well together. Uh, I know I know that they've done a pretty seamless edit for the Blu-ray, but I don't have a Blu-ray player, so. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, I think that about covers it for Doctor Strange as well. I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed that film because this is one of my favorites of the, the Marvel animated, uh, movies. Well, let me ask you, what are some of the other Marvel animated ones that you've caught? Um, I did catch, uh, Planet Hulk. Mm-hmm. And aside from cutting off the end of the story, because I have read that one as well, um, I thought it was a very uh, solid adaptation. I quite liked Planet Hulk. And uh, as I said, the Ultimate Avengers films, I just was – I maybe it's because the first trade of um, the Ultimates was one of my early graphic novels that I bought. So there's a little bit of sentimentality there. But I just didn't think it was a good adaptation at all of the source. Mm-hmm. And it, just, it was a cheap-looking movie, and it just – it wasn't good. Right. Yeah, I, I I agree with pretty much all of that. I think, um, I think a lot of the the Marvel films that they did kind of in the middle of their run. I think like starting with Doctor Strange, um, I thought Next Avengers was also pretty good, and Planet Hulk, and uh, oh, what was the other one? Oh, uh, the Thor one, Blood Brothers, or not Blood Brothers? That's the that's the uh, motion comic. comic yeah, the motion comic. Um, Tales of Asgard. Yeah. Uh, with Thor and Loki as, as uh, kids, as teenagers. Uh, I thought that was a pretty good adaptation, too, even though it's 
I thought it was weird because it's um, because it was very badly marketed. I thought because you look at the cover and you see adult Thor uh, holding a sword, and it makes no sense. And then the movie is actually about the two of them as uh, kids, where uh, Mjolnir is not a part of it, and it's about him finding this uh, powerful sword. It would have really been... It came out at the same time as the movie, of course, and I think it was a missed marketing opportunity because they could have really had the chance to provide an alternative for parents who maybe didn't feel like going to the theater. would have been a good alternative. Um, I, I don't know. In general, I will say Marvel has... They've gotten nowhere near... This is probably the first one of... This and Planet Hulk are the only ones I would put next to the DC animated stuff because... Otherwise, DC just lapped them. Right. Okay. Even some of the worst DC animated movies uh, are pretty much on par with some of the best Marvel animated ones. And the worst Marvel animated ones are pretty awful, especially some of the recent ones that they've done with the with the CG animation. I've I've I've, I've had no desire to watch those. Um, I mean, I just they, – they have they hold no appeal to me. I love the characters, but it's like, no, I, I don't have enough time in my life to watch this stuff. Right. Um, and, and they're very uh, – they're very kid-oriented. I think that maybe the reason that Marvel is so bad is because DC is so good at getting their storylines adapted into com- into the animated movies – while Marvel seems to be interested in using their storylines as a farm team for the uh, movies, for the live-action stuff. Right. With uh, Civil War headed, headed our way next year. Mm-hmm. That's, that, which is one of my favorite stories in comic form, so looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious to see where that goes. Um, but I I think that about covers it for Doctor Strange. Um I'd like to thank you for talking with me today. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you on. Uh, to do so. And uh, why don't you go ahead and remind everybody where they can find you online. I can be found, uh, I'm constantly on Twitter at Untitled User. Uh, you can find me at uh, a flickeringlife.wordpress.com, the filmroomlobby.wordpress.com, and thefilmroom.podbean.com. And as always, uh, you can find me, Bubba Wheat, on Twitter, uh, and you can find me at flightstightsandmovienights.com and channelsuperheroes.com, and you can find uh, this podcast, FilmWise, at filmwise.com, and on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you want to know what two films I'll be talking about on the next episode, go ahead and listen through to the end for the mashup trailer. Until next time. I believe you are sincere and good at heart. If you do not attain happiness, always remember that you are on the right road. Did anyone get the license plate of that thing that hit us last night? Above all, avoid falsehood. It looked like your mom, dude. (laughs) Every kind of falsehood. Yeah, that would make her your mom, too. Void fear. Got any moves left? Just this one. Just ask him.